Welcome to the Kingfisher Project, information and awareness about the heroin and opiate epidemic. I'm Julie Pizal. The Kingfisher Project began in memory of my daughter, Rebecca Jean Pizal, who was shot and killed due to her heroin addiction. At her memorial service, her former teacher, Mr. Okazalik, read an essay she wrote. It was about a bird, an injured kingfisher bird that she found and rescued when everyone else had given up on the bird. In that spirit, our community came together and formed the Kingfisher Project. Since 2014, we have been raising awareness about the drug and opiate crisis in our listening area and around the country, right here on Radio Catskill. Here is Bill Williams. Thanks, Julie. My guest today is Carol McDade. Carol spent over three decades in Washington, D.C., refining public policy addressing addiction and mental health at the government relations firm she co-founded in 2000, Capital Decisions. Ms. McDade provided clients with public affairs consulting on issues that spanned the breadth of health care, including behavioral health, Medicare, Medicaid, and private sector reimbursement issues. She served as a strategist and advisor to the Parity Now Coalition, which was influential in passage of the 2008 Paul Wellstone and Pete Dominici Mental Health Parity and Addiction Equity Act. This landmark legislation requires insurers to treat addiction, mental, and physical health problems equally. Carol also served as legislative advisor to the successful coalition effort to require addiction and mental health as essential health benefits under the Affordable Care Act. She also helped pass key laws after affecting the opioid crisis from 2015 to 2022. In 2004, to make a difference at the local level, Ms. McDade co-founded the McShin Foundation in Richmond, Virginia, with her husband, John Schinholzer. McShin is a nationally accredited nonprofit, full-service recovery community organization committed to serving individuals and families in seeking recovery from addiction in the state of Virginia. McShin offers peer-to-peer recovery support services that include recovery coaching, mentoring, and housing. Because Ms. McDade personally struggled with addiction, She understands the challenges, political and personal, of dealing with alcohol and drug issues. She currently serves on the boards of of the Recovery Advocacy Project, Mobilize Recovery, and the Hanover County VA Community Services Board. McDade also serves as an advisory board member of the Recovery Research Institute at Harvard Mass General. She's a founding board member of Faces and Voices of Recovery. In 2007, she received the Johnson Institute's America Honors Recovery Award, and in 2016, she received the American Society of Addiction Medicine's John B. McGovern Award. Carol, after all that time on an intro, do we have any time left to talk? Sure. If you don't mind, can we begin the Carol McDade story at the beginning? Tell us how all these wonderful things you did and have done and continue doing, how they came to be. You know, I'd love to tell you that I sat down with some kind of advisor in college or something and said, you know, I want to chart my career with you on how I can make a difference for people struggling with addiction and mental health. But at the time, I was one of those people, and um, no such plan was made. Like a lot of people, our careers find us, and I definitely was one of those people, Um I definitely, I grew up in Greensboro, North Carolina during a time when we had um, integration of schools, and I began my love for social justice because I was at a, I was bused about an hour away from my home 
to a 90% African-American school when I was in sixth grade. And I was stunned at the condition of the school, the condition of the projects that the school was located in. And I realized that, wow, there are some real differences in how people are living in our broader community. And this isn't fair. And my love for social justice, I think, was born there. Um, I grew up uh, with probably everything a kid could need, but I did grow up in a, in a household with a drug-addicted and alcoholic father, and uh, there was some abuse. And, um, and so it became very important to me to get out of my household and connect with other kids, many of whom were living lives like me out in the suburbs with everything money could buy, but not the kind of love and support at home that might be ideal for a kid. And the one thing that I did get um, was access to good education. I'm very grateful for that. It built in me a love of learning. And it I, because I was a kid growing up in the 70s, I was very much involved and in, in, in interested in, you know, uh, George McGovern was running for president, and this is the Watergate era, and there was a lot of uh, interest in, I think, trying to make our government a better place. And that was something that really turned me on from junior high school on. And so when I went to college, I continued to use dr misuse drugs and alcohol all during this period uh, from the time I was like 12 on. And um, But I continued my love for trying to make a difference and trying to be make politics uh, a better, cleaner kind of profession. And so I majored in political science. Um, I unfortunately OD'd at a frat party and the college asked me to, it was a private university and they asked me to graduate early and, and move it on down the road, which I did. And I ended up in Washington, DC. I was working as a paralegal at a law firm. This was before litigation was digitized and I was stamping five digit numbers in the bottom right hand corner of documents getting ready to go to an antitrust trial that were about 300,000 of them. So you can imagine this was an all day, every day, very boring job. And a senator who was retiring from Capitol Hill that was gonna come to the law firm I was working at to start a legislative and lobbying practice, I think took pity on me because he passed me in this fishbowl conference room stamping documents all day, every day, and he had uh, me start running errands for him, running uh, to get copies of bills. This was pre-email, if you can believe that. Um, and I was running, going up to Capitol Hill, grabbing copies of bills that had been introduced that day and bringing them back to him at the office. And he began to test me to see if I bothered to read them on the way back, which, of course, I was intellectually curious, and so I did. And... Um, that kind of moved me from wanting to be a lawyer. I had moved to D.C. to go to law school at night, but my addiction was really getting worse and worse, and I knew it was going to be tough for me to pull off going to law school at night, working full-time, and continuing to use like I did. never occurred to me to stop using, but um, I ended up, this, this senator asked me if I would prefer, instead of being a paralegal, to be a legislative analyst for him, which I jumped on when he told me that part of my job would be uh, getting my own American Express card and entertaining people on Capitol Hill for breakfast, lunch, dinner, and drinks at night. And I thought I'd died and gone to heaven. So that's how I really got into the lobbying business. 
And I don't know, six or seven years after that, um, Bill and Hillary Clinton uh, in 1998 were trying to reform the healthcare system. Uh, it did not happen, but I was working on that. And one of the clients that my firm was working on it for was a outfit called the Hazelin Foundation, which is headquartered in Minnesota and has uh, rehabilitation facilities in, in spots all over the country. And um, that's how I began, you know, working in the addiction and mental health space. Um, I was scared to tell my boss because people were not open about their recovery status back then that I had actually been a patient at Hazelden. And I decided if we, we were, you know, going to go up there and I didn't want him to be surprised by having my counselor, who was an advisor to the board, like show up and give me a big hug. So I told him I was, I had been to Hazelden and he said, what, did you go there for a conference? And I said, no, I was a patient there. He stopped what he was doing. He looks up from his papers. He was signing and he says, you're an alcoholic. And I said, yes, and a drug addict. And, um, I went to Hazelden as a patient, and then so he stops, he, bro- he breathes out this big breath, and I'm thinking, oh, my God, I've just sent out these announcements that I'm going to be this vice president at this firm, and um, he stops, he paces back and forth, and I'm thinking, oh, I'm going to have to tell my mother I got canned, you know, and all of a sudden he goes, they're going to think I'm a genius, McDade, this is perfect. We're going to tell them that I hired you just to service their business, and you're going to go on and become the best addiction and uh, lobbyist in Washington. And, you know, sadly, he, for better or for worse, even though it was a little bit uh, of a subterfuge, he, he laid out my career path that day, and that's exactly what I did. Well, I, I hope I'm not interrupting, but <clears throat> last night when I was falling asleep, I said, how— how could I describe Carol's career? And um, <clears throat> I said, here's what I came up with. It happened not by design, but by seizing opportunity. And you threw in some cocktails along the way. That's exactly right. You, 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 you said it much more shorter, shorter and succinctly than I did. But yes, that's exactly right, Bill. Between the moment he made that decision and then you found it co-founded Capital Decisions. How much, how much of a gap? What, what, what was that time period and what was going on? So um, I, I got hired um, in um, 1993 by him, and he ended up passing away, unfortunately, from lung cancer in 99. And someone else took over the firm that did not want me. Um, I was starting to work against the health insurance industry in order to pass that parity legislation that you talked about in the intro. And this new owner of the company wanted me to work for the insurance industry since they're the one with the deep pockets and not against it. And unfortunately, I didn't want to work for the health insurance industry, even though I had been a lobbyist at Blue Cross Blue Shield for three years when managed care first came into being. And I realized it was more about managing dollars than managing care, let's put it that way. And so it, there was a span of seven years before I went and started my own firm. Got it. How does one go about starting their own lobbying firm? Well, you know, 
I'm sure there's plenty of ways to do it that would be market-based and you'd see, you know, where the areas of needs are. I just started using my Rolodex, which we had, which, which is where we kept our contacts back in the day. And I called a, um, a man that I knew owned his own firm, and I asked him if he was willing for me to come over and talk to him. And at the time, I really didn't think I was going to start my own firm. I just wanted to, I had some portable accounts that I could bring with me, which is everything in that business. And did a lot of businesses, right? So I told him about that. And it turned out that his largest and oldest client was Anheuser-Busch. And my largest and oldest one was the Betty Ford Center. And as it it turned out, Betty Ford and Augie Bush had a long-standing debate and dislike for one another over the Anheuser-Busch frog on the lily pad commercials, which I don't know if any of your listeners probably remember. But in Mrs. Ford's mind, Anheuser-Busch was starting to cater to kids and to get them engaged in the drinking culture earlier and earlier, which she disapproved of. And she told the Bushes, uh, the Anheuser-Busch folks, how she felt, and they thanked her very much for her input and ignored her. And so we realized that there would be this huge conflict because one of the things that clients were working, asking me to work on back there was an alcohol tax, which, of course, would have been squarely against where his client was. So he said, well, what about if we spin off a separate firm? And so that's what we did. And I had most of the behavioral health and sort of the do-gooder social justice clients over at my firm, Capital Decisions. And, of course, we had had to have separate everything to pass the lobbying restrictions and stuff. So we had separate bookkeeping, separate everything. Um, but I had my own firm within a larger firm, which had a lot of benefits because um, I wasn't, you know, he had enough money to, to donate to politicians and the, the firm had their own pack and I did not. So it worked out. It worked out really well for both of us. And it worked out until I retired uh, at the end of this year. Yeah, so you're, that's right. Your retirement is very recent. Now, does the firm? Yeah. Does the firm still exist? It does. It absolutely does. I had a colleague, um, Holly Strain, that worked with me there for 21 years, and I have left it in her able hands. Lucky Holly. Yes. Well, and that's what Duffy, you know, the my mentor, the one that I told you got me kind of going in this area um he did that for me he he left me with a few clients and i wanted to do the same for holly i'm a big believer in karma knowing knowing you as i do that does not surprise me in the least um we uh when i say we i mean my wife margo and i um in 2014 two years after our son died might have even been 2013, but we went to a a large meeting that was held by Phoenix House, the recovery organization in New York City at the time, and uh, they had three speakers. They had David Sheff, who's the author of Clean and Beautiful Boy, and some people may have recalled seeing the movie Beautiful Boy. Um, Dr. Andrew Kolodny, who's a physician and one of the founders of uh, prop physicians for responsible opioid pres- prescribing, and Greg Williams, who's a filmmaker, and they all spoke. It was a long evening. They all spoke, said, said their piece, 
and then there were times for questions and answers. They said, we have time for one more question. And Margot raised her hand and she said, what about the insurance companies? And there was this audible nod of groan, I don't know what it was, but gasp of appreciation in the room. And yes. Greg Williams said, um, you want to talk to Carol McDade? And we called you, and that's how we, uh, I don't know if you recall that or not, but that's how we got in touch with you, and that's, that's how we came to speak in Washington. Yep, that's exactly right. I remember it well, and I remember I was, I was on a train somewhere, and Greg said, I'm the, I just gave your name and number out to these people. They're going to be calling you, and I, I remember receiving that text. And, and then we, we spoke once <clears throat> with Congressman Tonko, Who's from represents from Albany from right for, for people in our neighborhoods you know uh, and uh, Holly was there and I, I guess she liked what she heard because then you invited us to speak with the uh, the um, Senate Addiction Forum. That's right. And that's uh, exactly right. And y'all were very well received, I might add. Well, thank you. And. Um, it began the the really the incredible work you and Margot have done uh, over the years at many other events and have um, it's one of the few times members of Congress will specifically ask me for a particular speaker to come back and you were you and Margot were one of those. Well, you're kind. I, I remember, and the reason I brought it up, I remember we we met to get there. We met at a coffee shop in Union Station. You appeared. Yep. You appeared from around the corner on a rainy day. Walked us over to the Capitol, and I would say that both metaphorically and literally and practically, you know the ins and you know and knew the ins and outs of D.C. Because when we got to the Capitol, you said we're going to go in this door over here. The line is shorter in the to get checked out and all the rest of it. Right. Um, and that was. That's when I said, "Oh, this lady certainly seems to know what's going on." Yeah. Well, you've been there for a while. You better. But that is that's one of the most important roles of a lobbyist is to help get people in and out because it can be a real maze up there. And a lot of the numbering of the office buildings and such makes no sense to outsiders. So it helps to have a scout to lead you around. Well, you you were terrific. Um, things. Things move slowly on Capitol Hill. I don't think you, – you don't need me to tell that, tell you that. We know that. That's correct. I, I guess my question exactly. for you now is have they ground to a halt? Well, I will tell you, you know, you probably could get 50 different opinions on that. But it, it, that, that grinding of the halt and the lack of either side to work with the other on getting things done, even when there are very narrow margins in the House and Senate between Republicans and Democrats so that they really, to pass things, they have to work together. I would say um, that, that, that the, the toxic relationships and the, the pace at which things are moving or are not moving it led in part for me to decide to retire a little earlier. I'm 63 than I intended to because I just couldn't take it anymore, especially when some of the issues that, that we work on together, Bill, are, are literally life and death. And to have someone say, well, you're not going to work with the Republicans on that, or you're not going to work with Democrats on that, like it just, 
knowing full well that I'd have to to get anything passed in out of either chamber, either House or Senate, it, it just it started to wear on me, and um, I felt like a lot of the the legislation that we had got passed to combat the opioid epidemic, while some of it's helped, things like naloxone, I think, have reduced the, the overdose death rate. We're still finding that fentanyl deaths are going up. Uh, fentanyl overdoses are going up, even though in some parts of the country the death rate is going down. The overdose rate still remains high, and I think the reason why there aren't, you know, as high of death rates in some places, although it's not true everywhere, by by any means, is because of the use of naloxone and and things like Suboxone, a medicine to treat opioid addiction. I've, as I've thought about the question I just asked you, I've I've come to believe more and more. And stop me if you think I'm wrong, but if if we have hope that there, we have more hope in terms of the. Uh, drug abuse, drug addiction, the epidemic, whatever you want to call it, uh, there's more hope with what we do at the grassroots level and grassroots organization than there is with with big with government waiting the things are seem to seem to work better on a small scale than they do on the large scale. Did I express that I think, clearly enough? I think you did. I think you did. And while while there is a role for um big government to get out. I mean, you know, we got in the last, in the, from 13 to 22, we got $10 billion out of Washington to combat the opioid epidemic. Most of that went to the states. Um, And so there is a role for big government, but I think when you talk about how it is spent and how it is targeted and how it can best help local communities, Absolutely, grassroots groups or local organizations are much much better equipped than Washington to decide how this money ought to be spent. So mm-hmm. I think that I think you're right, and and that's one of the reasons why you saw in my resume I'm working for my local county's community service board, which helps you know uh, give. Uh, resources to the indigent who have addiction and mental illness problems. And I do a lot of work with other boards that that are working at the state or local level as well. So, um, yeah, and that's why we started the McShin Foundation, too, so that we could um, get faster results at the local level. Well, I don't know that you're unique, but you probably got to be one of the few people that has worked at both the large, large scale, the national level and at the local level. Probably plenty of others that that enjoy that same um, experience, but I'm grateful that I have done both because it really gives you a sense of how much quicker you can get things done at the local level. Um, You know, as I said that to you, it made me think of a gentleman who's been a guest on this show, Rob Kent. Have you come across Rob? I do. Yeah, who was... uh, Okay. Worked at the New, in New York. He's in and, New York State, and he worked at ONDCP, and I think he now has his own firm. You yeah. got it. You're on it. Yep. Yep. Okay. Well, we need we need more people like you, too. Right. And Rob really has a heart for the issues as well. Yes, he does. He really does. 
Actually, one thing I I would note, since I know both of you, is you are both accessible, and I think that's very right. important. It is. Um, you know, a phone call doesn't get if if, it, if you leave a message, you get a call back. If there's an email, the email gets answered. Yes, it's really important, and I think I learned that you know from client service. I've I've gotten a little lax now that I'm retired because it's so wonderful not to be a slave to your email all the time like I was. But in general, I try to return phone calls in 24 hours to the best of my ability. And it just, it served me well in client service and it serves me, serves you well in life. You know, everybody likes to feel heard. Yes. Yes. In particular, if they call and ask if you want to be on their radio show and they, you say, oh, great, I've got, a, I've got a great guest for my next episode. <laughs> well, that helps, too, I guess. <laughs> and so, I'm honored to do it, Bill. If anybody deserves people to go on a show or, frankly, any other project you do, it's you and Margo. Y'all have, you have taken up so much of your personal life on these topics and, and are experts in your own right, frankly. Oh, I keep worrying about that expert. I, I keep worrying about all the things I forget or all the things I get wrong. That's all right. You can always go back and clean it up. You're listening to The Kingfisher Project on the Local Edition. I'm Bill Williams, and I'm talking to Carol McDade. She has spent three decades in Washington working on public policy that impacts addiction and mental health. More with Carol after this break. You're on the go, and Radio Catskill can go with you. Listen live to Radio Catskill on your phone. Just type wjffradio.org into your browser and listen wherever you are. Stay up to date on local news, culture, and NPR on the go on your phone with Radio Catskill. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. You may have heard that prices for used vehicles are up. Well, I bring this up because that car or truck you don't need anymore, it's probably worth more today as a donation than it was even a few months ago. So if you don't need it anymore, or if it's going to be too expensive to repair, why not donate it to this station? It's easy, it's free to you, and the proceeds help us bring you the news. Donate at WJFFradio.org. Welcome back to the Kingfisher Project on the Local Edition. I'm Bill Williams, and I'm talking with Carol McDade. She has spent three decades in Washington working on public policy that impacts addiction and mental health. She is also co-founder of the McShin Foundation, a nonprofit, full-service recovery community organization. Um, tell us a little about the McShin Foundation. Yes. Well, in... Uh... We started it in, my husband, John Schindhalzer, and I started it, hence the name McDade and Schindhalzer. We put it together to come up with the name of the place. And we did it in 2004 because, frankly, we were running out of sofas at the house. And um, we were taking people in who, in the county in which we lived in Virginia, um, I spent my week in D.C. and my weekends at home and in, in outside of Richmond. And there was a 23-day waiting list for any type of substance use help at all. And in many states in the South, and this only changed here within the last eight years, Medicaid did not cover uh, individuals with substance use disorders unless they were pregnant or had, or, uh, had children. 
So all basically males were just cut out of any services if they were uh, poor or didn't have private insurance. And that that put all this pressure on the indigent county system to try to find help for people, and they were just overrun with it. And so we – and I was doing all this work in Washington trying to save the world nationally, and I started to feel a little guilty. I wouldn't do anything in my own backyard other than having people, you know, stay at the house so they could get on their feet. But um, – and my husband would try to help them find jobs. And, um, you know, everybody would be detoxing cold turkey back then. And um, – because heroin was a big – you know, was the big issue back then and crack, but um, – yeah, so we, we decided we had – our daughter was growing up, and we were running out of sofas, and so we decided, decided to start a nonprofit, and my husband did most of the heavy lifting. I just kind of helped with fundraising and that kind of thing, but he got the nonprofit started, and we had no business plan. I wouldn't recommend it, but we had no business plan, no budget. We just self-funded, and, uh, you know – and we also, because of what I do and what his beliefs are, we also did a lot of advocacy at the state. And sometimes we called out the public system for, for not, you know, helping enough people and not doing it in a timely way, which kind of made it impossible to then go back and ask them for money. So we, we did a lot of fundraising from individuals in recovery or their family members and between our money and theirs, we helped stand the place up for the first couple of years. And then later on, we, you know, got SAMHSA grants and we, we got some other grants to keep things going. And eventually we, we did get some money from the state and um, yeah. And we've been going strong ever since. Uh, how many people do you serve and what do you serve? Have you served? And uh, yeah. what kind of services do you provide? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the biggest things that people don't really realize can be such an asset in the community is we have a very large three-story recovery community center, and it's basically like the, uh, you know, central hub of all things recovery in our community. We hold 12-step meetings of every kind. We have, McShin has its own recovery program. Um, we have a free day program where people can come just for the day. We have about 150 recovery housing beds. Virginia is one of those states where if you get an alcohol or drug conviction, you lose your license. So a lot of our housing is within walking distance of this recovery community center. And then for those people who want a higher level of care, we have specialized programs where um, they are gender specific, where women and men are um, have a whole array of services, not just a recovery program, but we we connect them with their um, with detox, with counseling, with um, you know a nutritionist, um, an exercise program, gym membership, you know a higher kind of a higher level of program, probably more similar to what you get in a rehab, but instead of being locked away far away, you're you're in your community, but you're just um, our women's program is probably 15 or 20 miles outside of town. We found that some of the women were having a hard time recovering with, with people hitting on them and that kind of thing, so we separate them out. We're also pretty well-known nationally for our jail-based recovery programming. We're in jails all across the state of Virginia, and we've mixed, John, my husband does a lot of consulting with other states who want to set up 
jail-based programs, recovery housing, or recovery community organizations like McShin and other places. And so our model has become pretty well-known, and it's pretty replicable. So we've we've been happy with the way that what we've done in Richmond has been able to be spread to other places. Now, you said uh, at one point you said the McShin, you were describing the various 12-step programs, and then you said you have your own McShin Program? Are we talking? Is that a McShin recovery program, or is we, or is that the whole well, McShin? It's both. It's both. We have we provide a place for free twelve step meetings of any kind. So, Smart Recovery, Buddhist Recovery, AA, NA, all of those. Um, anybody that needs a meeting place for some recovery related activity, but then separate and apart from that, we have a paid recovery program where an individual who, say, pays uh, $3,500 for 90 days and they get access to recovery housing, recovery coach, where they, they set up their own recovery action plan according to what goals they have for the, for the rest of their life. We help them, you know, get ID if they don't have it, get their driver's license, get all the things back that allow a person to stand up a full and complete adult life. You know, food stamps, like we'll help them get all that stuff together. Um, and then they also have, um, they have like programming all day, every day. And then they go to, you know, so we have facilitated groups by um, counselors. We have yoga experts coming in. So we have a variety of classes and activities for them during the day and then at night, we take them to the 12-step or other recovery meeting of their choice. And then on Sundays, they have some type of spiritual practice of their choice. So we, we, we keep them busy. Um, but it's both, you know, a home for all, all things recovery, but it is also a home for our program itself. Got it. Um, are there any aspects of your program that, that differ from traditional AA, say, in any noticeable way or important way? Well, I think I think one difference is that we respect all pathways to recovery. So if someone has to be on medication, they're welcome in our program. Um, sometimes, you know, some recovery places don't like people on methadone or Suboxone or whatever, and we're fine with what, whatever that pathway is, and we help you find providers that, that – are in our network of people who we think are good and not, not you know, giving it out without the right kinds of oversight and that kind of thing. Um, some of the other things, we are big believers in that you grow where you're planted. And so um, we let people, you know, unlike some rehabs where you're kind of locked in and closed in all day, our people go to, we let them, you know, if they're early on, they go with another their peer coach, but they can go and walk down to the drugstore and pick up stuff, or they're taken to grocery stores or Walmart. We're we're reintroducing them into normal life in the community right away, and and then they earn more freedom as they go along. So it's not like you know you're locked up in a bed and you stay there and you just stay on campus. We take people places. We take them to the activities. We take them rock climbing or whitewater canoeing or, you know, there's always some type of, you know, fun activity, especially because we have a lot of young adults. 
and we take them to do stuff so that it's not like you're locked away someplace. So it sounds a lot different from your experience at Hazelden. That's exactly right. Okay. Well, I, because I, it was really tough for me coming back, and there's, and I needed to be taken away from the source of my drugs. I really did. So that, for me, it was good. But I have to say, after 30 days, I went and lived in a recovery house when I got back from Hazelden. But it was like it was like a shock to have to walk by bars, to have to go to the grocery store and see the beer and wine aisle. Like it was all kind of like wow. And we're big believers in that you get people used to that these are a part of daily life that, you know, you don't partake in, but that you still have to get comfortable seeing. And so that was part of the, and, you know, my husband, he got his recovery in rehab at the Marine Corps, in the Marine Corps. And so we really tried to take the, the lessons we learned from, you know, I had been to several of the fancy pants rehabs, if you will. And he had not, but he had a lot of structure in the, as you can imagine, in the barracks of the Marine Corps rehab. So we um, combined the best of what we had learned from those places in developing the McShen model. Got it. Got it. Um, how you said this, and listening to your own story, and I, I know you've certainly believes how important storytelling is for people to tell their stories, to share their stories. How do we get politicians to share their stories? What I'm, what I'm saying is there are a number of times that as, as the parent who lost a child, I have testified or spoken before politicians, but seldom do we hear anything coming back the other way. And I, I feel like there might be some value in, in teasing out their stories and teasing out their stories publicly publicly as as difficult as it might be and as fearful as they might be of doing something like that. Yeah, I, I, I think you're absolutely right. I agree with you. And I, I do want to give credit where it's credit where credit is due. The two members of Congress, neither of them, one of them is deceased and one of them isn't in government anymore, but Patrick Kennedy and Jim Remstead both told their stories publicly. And I think in large part, that was one of the successful ingredients to why we got parity passed. It took us 12 years, but they really used their story. And, you know, there were a lot, there are a handful of other members that were also in recovery that would tell them, well, we could, we'd never get reelected if we told the truth about our recovery. And they would go to like AA meetings secretly on Capitol Hill and stuff. And so there are members who have done it, and not only that, they they had commanding leads by which they were reelected after telling their story. So we know that it's not political suicide necessarily. Now that might not be true in every district in America, but it's true in a lot of them. Yeah. And so we we know it can be done, and we know it can be done successfully. I think one of the things that we're we're, um, we're working on right now through a organization that I'm on their board called the Recovery Advocacy Project is that we are trying to train candidates who are in recovery on how to run for office to do exactly what you're saying, Bill, which is to build that base so that because we believe that when people know people themselves who have recovered from these illnesses, they're going to be much more likely not to be so uh, judgmental and um, discriminatory against them. 
Um, I can remember, you know, my daughter going to Catholic school and she had friends whose families would not let her come over to spend the night at our house because her parents were quote, quote, addicts. Now, mind you, you know, at the time, my husband probably had 25 years clean, but, um, and I probably had, I don't know, eight or 10. So, you know, there's a lot of stigma. And so we're, we're, we're working on that right now to encourage people. And we have, you know, our first flight, if you will, of, of uh, potential political aspirants who we're training right now. Um, we hope there'll be more. There's also something um, called the Recovery Appointments Project that has been worked on, and that's helping get people jobs in the federal government who are in recovery. So a lot of work is going on to do that, but I think you're right. It, we need to continue to build that base and of people who are in office and willing to talk about that their recovery publicly, and for both of those projects I just mentioned, being public about your recovery is a requirement for us to take you into this program for free. Wow. Yeah. Um, so if any if any of your uh, listeners are, are interested in that, you can feel free to um, – Give them my email address if they're if they would if they're in recovery and they'd like to run for office and like to get trained to do so. We'd be happy to uh, talk to them. Okay. Well, as you know, we're in a rural area. I don't know how many people up here are thinking about running for office. Uh, well, the, you never know. The only person I know who ran for office was a writing as a writing candidate for the local town board was my daughter, and she is not in recovery. Okay. Well, you never know who just who might listen to these things, so I just thought I'd throw it out there. Absolutely. I'm glad you did. Who are your who are your heroes? Oh, well, let me go back. Uh, you mentioned Patrick Kennedy. Um, he's written a book about his entire story, and he still works. He has. I, I assume has. You, I assume you've read it. I have. So have I. <laughs> it was it was a good book and. I was honored to be included in it, and um, I, you know, think that Patrick has continued to carry on the legacy of not only his own but his family in the work he's doing at the Kennedy Forum, and um, I'm just real proud to call him a friend and, and to acknowledge all the work he's done in our space. And it took a lot of bravery to tell the story he told in his book and not everybody in his family thought it was such a great idea to talk about their issues publicly. And so he did so at some personal risk. And um, But he also helped so many people by doing that. Yeah. Uh, and the reason I went back to him, I, who are some people that have inspired you uh, to continue to do your work and just people in, in general who have worked in your field or – who have helped fight addiction and, and drug abuse. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I really do think of Patrick as a hero because um, it's not easy to relapse at all. And then when you relapse and CNN is covering your relapse, um, you know, Patrick went through a whole lot to get to where he is and to sustain his recovery. And he had, you know, lots of starts and stops and along the way, and he's grabbed hold of this of this thing now, and he's a father of five, and he's got this great organization. He, you know, speaks and talks and does just 
so many good things. And, you know, he's on the Martin Luther King Memorial Project. And, I mean, he just does, like, so many things. So he's definitely one of my heroes. I think Paul Wellstone and Jim Ramstead, Paul was a senator from Minnesota that died, and uh, he had a, a brother with mental illness, and that motivated him to do his work on the parity bill. Um, and his son, Dave Wellstone, continues to do that work and works in our space. And so they're both heroes of mine. And, um, you know, I think Bill White, he's probably the best-known historian in the addiction field. And he has written truths about our field that not everybody wanted to hear. And he's done so um, really honestly and forthrightly. And, you know, he writes – he's an academic, and his writings – you you, you kind of have to you know go through them pretty carefully to to pick everything up. But he he basically wrote the manual for how we started McShin. So he's definitely one of our heroes because we he used to write these monographs on like how to be a recovery community organization and what elements are important and just as all these things were beginning. And so for many of us, he's been sort of the spiritual leader of the modern recovery movement. So he's definitely. Um, a hero. Um, I really enjoyed working with Pat Taylor, who was the founding executive director of Faces and Voices of Recovery. That organization would have never gotten off the ground in the way that it did um, without her. So those are just a few that come to mind. Last question before we run out of time. How would you, what suggestions do you have about how we educate young people, um, both in terms of drug use. I, I, I feel like we need a meta curriculum uh, where people are – maybe that sounds pretentious to say meta curriculum, but to, for people to understand how drugs are woven into so many aspects of our society and so many aspects of the history of our society – I mean, slaves. Yeah. Slaves came to the New America. What were they? What were they working on? Tobacco, and rum, right? Or sugarcane. And sugarcane, yeah. So I, I, I think you're right. I, I guess I would kind of break it up into age groups, and some of this is just based on our experience of of dealing with young adults at McShin. I think with the younger kids, what I have seen, and I mean, you know, from elementary, junior high, and in in some respects, high school, but in particular, elementary and junior high, I think they need to hear from each other. I think that peer pressure is so important at that age, and I think they need to hear from their own age group when getting educated about drugs. You know, having me come in as a 63-year-old woman and talk to a high school or a junior high school, everyone's like, oh, yawn, yawn, snooze, snooze, who is this old broad, you know? (laughs) But what we've noticed is when we send one of our 17-year-old clients up to the high school and have them tell their story, everybody's on the edge of their seat. And so I would say peer-to-peer prevention education for younger kids. And then one of the things that we realized that I was pretty big on, and my husband was arguing with me, they're not going to understand this language, you know, why are you, you know, you're, you're going to be talking in a language they don't understand. And I always made sure that we, you know, brought, we bring in once a month didactic language about the, you know, didactic information about the disease of addiction, 
about the brain chemistry. And we have found that our people respond so well to that. They track it. They, they understand it. And the relief they get from realizing that they have an illness and they're not just bad, awful people um, has been really amazing to watch. So I think you're onto something about the right kind of a curriculum because our people have really benefited from it. And we actually hear them teaching new people when they walk in about it before they've even had the lectures that we provide on it. So it's pretty, it's pretty interesting how meaningful that has been to them. I mean, we bring out all of Nora Volkoff from the National Institute on Drug Abuse. We pull out her brain scans to show that their brains are different than people who don't have drug problems. Every bit of this, they just they just soak it up, Bill. They're, they're fascinated and interested and engaged with it. So I think you're, you're on to something with your idea. I've thought of a, a Venn diagram. I mean, all the things you're not supposed to talk about at the dinner table, sex, politics, and religion. And yeah. And think about how each of those interacts with drugs in our society. Oh, yeah. And you say, wait a minute, you, or, or society at large. You say, well, religion, does that have anything to do with drugs? I said, yes. Think of all, think of all the religions or think of religious groups that don't want to have anything to do with drugs. Oh, um, right. Yeah. Um. I mean, there are just so many in intersections that we I don't think we consider enough. I think you're right. I think you're right. In fact, uh, a couple of years ago, there was this program that was held during National Recovery Month called Drugs Over Dinner. And the idea was, you know, September is National Recovery Month for people recovering from alcohol and drug addiction. And um, there were there was sort of a toolkit to teach people how to throw a dinner party at your house where you would in, in, encourage the topic to be exactly like what you're talking about. And I wish people would start that back. We, we held one at our home, and we live in a fairly conservative rural community. And um, I was amazed at how interested our neighbors were in having this discussion and how um, – you know, they would, like, start whispering, well, my son-in-law has a problem, or, you know, and I'd be like, you don't need to whisper. <laughs> We're good. We don't think anything less of you or your son-in-law, because we've been there ourselves, you know. And it was just interested giving them permission to be loud and proud about the situations that they've encountered in their own lives and in their own community. That That is interesting. It is interesting, isn't it? And I like the idea... I like the idea of having kids interact with peers. I, f oh. I, f I feel like when when William, our son, who was in his early 20s, was in uh, rehab situations, that really he was he was thrown in with a, with a bunch of adults, uh, people yeah. older than he was. And I just feel if he'd had more opportunity to be with people his own age, there might have been a better outcome. There might have been. I mean, you can never tell. And, um, you know, that being said, I was, let's see, when I first went to rehab, I was 19. And, and then I, I went again at uh, 29. And I remember my roommate was a 75 to 80-year-old woman whose family, I was there based on an of employer intervention, and she was there based on a family intervention. And she just 
the whole time said she wasn't an alcoholic or an addict. She didn't need to be there. You know, meanwhile, she was like, had a, was walking around with a cast because she had fallen when she took, was on too many pills. So it was, um, it was interesting that, that, you know, she called me a brat and I called her an old broad and, but we ended <laughs> up being friends and, um, learning from one another. So I do think, you know, it, it just all depends. Like when the pupil is ready, the teacher appears, you know? Yeah. And yes, indeed. There's, there's a certain bit of the unknown about what creates the circumstances in which the, you know, the student is ready, but definitely um, having a crisis of some kind sometimes helps you get there, and you, then you're more teachable. Well, I had another thought the other night. You talked about, you know, there are many, many paths um, to sobriety uh, or many paths up the mountain, but yes. I think there are also many mountains. There and, are. And that... Uh, you get you get what I'm talking about. I think um, I do. That not everybody, not everybody's problem is the same. Not at all. And not and nor is the solution for the, for each problem the same. No, and it was you know I think a lot of our government policy, unfortunately, has really tried to make there be a one size fits all policy, and unfortunately, addiction is just. It's a multifaceted disease, and there's not a one-size-fits-all fix for every person. And every time our government just tries to throw money in one area, you oftentimes find that it's it's not working. And yeah. so I think through these tailored strategies, it's harder. I get it, and it's probably might be more expensive, but you just can't take a person that's only been drinking, you know, uh, you know, like episodically for two or three years while they were in college and expect them to get recovery for someone that's been a heroin addict for or an opiate addict for 20 years. The, the, the courses for their recovery are just not the same. Got it. So, yeah, there's plenty of work for all of us to noodle on this for some time, huh? There is indeed. There is indeed. <laughs> yep. Well, Luckily, we have people like you to inspire us, and I want to thank you very much, Carol. Oh, I'm delighted to be included, Bill, really, and, and give my love to Margot, too, and tell her I'm thinking about her as well. I will indeed.